Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, the real opening night, one of my favorite nights of the year. Get to finally see all these teams, some of the teams that, that really interest me. Generally, get a little bit better idea of some of the marquee teams that are going to play on opening night. So what we're going to do, a little bit different of an approach here because Danny and I were both really bouncing around a lot. We obviously didn't get a chance to watch all of every game, but enough that we can hopefully give you some observations that'll be useful. So we're going to go through just about every game here, put a cap of five minutes on each one that we're going to discuss. So let's get started in chronological order here. Charlotte and Chicago. This one really sucked me in. The most fun game of the night, in my opinion. Not for Bulls fans, but definitely for Hornets fans as they watch their team go 23 of 44 from downtown. P.J. Washington setting an NBA record by for most three-pointers by a player in his NBA debut. He was 7 of 11 from downtown. Many of them wide open corner looks. He led the Hornets with 27. And Devontae Graham was 6 of 7 from downtown. Many of those, again, pretty wide open looks. The Bulls closeouts and rotations, thanks Zach Levine were pretty atrocious in this one obviously charlotte shot amazingly well at 52 percent on 44 attempts but they had some really wide open look marvin williams also was five out of seven in this one and Devonte graham actually closed the game rather than terry rozier he had the three or 58 million dollar contract two of ten from the field for rozier negative 18 graham was plus 14 and Rozier can't have been happy to sit, but Graham was on fire. He looked fantastic uh, and certainly looked like he at least provided some capable backup point guard play. Only one game, obviously, but also had eight assists. He, he was really diming guys up on the pick and roll. I, I thought he looked pretty good. What was your main takeaway from this one? Chicago's defense was an interesting part of it for me because they had some real highlights. Not only Chris Dunn blowing up a bunch of, of actions when he came he came off the bench, had this big stretch where he scored five points off a layup and an and one. And then Wendell Carter had some nice contests around the rim, ended up being credited with one block. But I thought he did a, a nice job there overall. But you're right, there were a lot of cleaner than expected looks from three for Charlotte. They also made more than you would expect you to get again in those sorts of circumstances but I, I do think there were positives to take away for Chicago and in another one of them Lowry Markkinen just having I mean we talked last year about how much he struggled from two in this game 35 points on 13 of 25 from the field but one of seven from three so he did almost all of his damage I, I, he did a lot of it as a driver actually and I thought overall marketing like if I were to say where it went I think he looked very well very good yeah he was actually able to put it on the floor against smaller players like Bridges and Washington and get to the cup a lot of floaters a lot of layups his rebounding was awesome in this game five offensive rebounds 17 total and just was using that big standing reach to get his hands on a lot of balls had sticky hands and 
the concern in the preseason was that he'd just been kind of a three-point shooter he hadn't been aggressive and he certainly dispelled those notions of course the Bulls completely forgot about him he had 30 points before the third quarter was up and then in the fourth quarter they just uh, went away from him completely finally towards the end after the Bulls first went on a 14 to 1 run then gave up a 15 to 1 run immediately in response and then were able to actually get back into the game after being down two possessions late and had a couple of chances to tie Uh, Zach Levine went for a quick two when they had no timeouts left he said he was looking for the three and he couldn't get it but they still had like 10 seconds left Uh, Jim Boylan set up used their last timeout with 17 seconds left to also set up a quick two when they were down three that one and both plays worked they got the quick two but then they went for the trap after that that actually wasn't terrible to go for the trap after the first quick two but Charlotte was able to get out of it Graham hit a couple of ice free throws um well and the other point to emphasize there is it's a lot worse to go for a quick two down three when you don't have any timeouts left like that one with Zach Levine because your chances of winning the game are extremely low because as long as the other team gets the ball in you're not even if you like force a turnover or force a miss you might not have enough time to score yeah the second one was utterly indefensible right the first one was bad the second one was terrible but also because they used up their last time out they didn't have a chance to set up something for a three the second time as well um Levine really struggled in the first half came on in the second but was only 7 to 17 for 16 points I thought Sadoransky could have played more use plus four only played 24 minutes so Chris Dunn did have it going defensively but I thought they stuck with him a little bit too long when they just couldn't score uh, during that 15 to 1 Charlotte run I don't see why Ryan Archidiakono needs to play 11 minutes and Sadoransky only played 24 especially when they just don't have that much size they went to a lot of three guard alignment so did the Hornets uh, in fact Kobe White looked really good I thought he competed defensively and it was 6-13 to 13 for 17 points, but he looks pretty physical out there. I mean, now granted, this isn't a Charlotte team that has a, a ton of length or athleticism, especially protecting the rim, but uh, I really liked uh, what White did. His seven assists were two more than he had all of preseason, <laughs> wow. which was pretty good. He had a, some nice left-handed passes to shooters, got out in transition. So, I mean, the Bulls probably deserved to win this game. Uh, they outplayed the Hornets. Uh, the Hornets had a record-setting three-point shooting night, but... The Bulls also had this game won. They were up 10 with five minutes left and just couldn't score down the end as Charlotte came back. Also liked what Wendell Carter gave them in 29 minutes. I thought he was pretty solid moving his feet. Um, P.J. Washington, though, I mean, not a guy that I was that familiar with, but it looked great. Yeah, somebody we didn't watch film on looked super confident shooting those threes, and we'll just have to see how it moves moving forward. Uh, Three other things. One, Hornets over, baby. One to (laughs) no. Line drive in the box score. Uh, Cody Zeller, his competence, especially as a role man, I thought that that really helped Devontae Graham in moments. It just helped the Hornets offense. I, I really like yeah. Having, you know, having that stability, having a competent center out there does really help them. Nick Batum breaking his middle finger. We'll just have to kind of see the the consequence yeah. there. Uh, I mean, he, he wasn't starting anyway. No, you know, he I mean, wasn't he, starting he, anyway. I mean, and PJ Washington my, and Miles Bridges just, you know, especially PJ just having such a huge game. And well, then the last uh, another one. Another no, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Thaddeus Young. Anachronistic, you know, like for those of us who've watched his whole career, three of five from three, including a heat check three. Maybe the first one of his career yeah, couple of those were above the break a couple of those were above the break and also he had like I, I i don't know if it was a hook shot or a push shot but it was right-handed doesn't do that very often it was very i was i was genuinely pumped up about that but yeah it was this is just a fun game also worth noting charlotte did not play a center other than zeller 
they just went with marvin williams uh, as their backup center zeller played 35 minutes and he really i think if if he could stay healthy they might be respectable if not and they got to go to biombo and hernan gomez neither of whom played tonight or maybe they would even go with kid gilchrist uh, at center a lot i mean barrigo certainly has no qualms about playing small uh Dwayne Bacon eight out of 21 I mean he looked good at times I like that he got up eight three-point attempts at least and they need someone just to take the difficult shots uh, to be aggressive I don't think he's going to have that efficient of a year but I think he will be important for them just to create some shots all right that was a little bit more than five minutes but I watched that whole game let's go to Detroit and Indiana only saw about the last four or five minutes uh, of this one I came in right as TJ Warren got undercut by Thonmaker and actually got a charge for his trouble. But Warren came down, injured his hip. He's going to be okay. He says he might actually even play, but he uh, he bruised his hip pretty badly. It, it looked like a, another dangerous play, a seven-footer undercutting a guy moving forward. They should have called a block on him. They called a charge instead. Um, but really disappointing loss for the Pacers considering Blake Griffin did not play in this one. Andre Drummond, 41 minutes, 32 points, seven offensive rebounds. You, although the Pistons only had 10 total, you would hope that with Sabonis and Turner playing together a lot, they could control that. Turner and Sabonis both scored extremely well offensively. 38 minutes for Turner, 36 for Sabonis, uh, 25 and 27 points respectively. But down the end, the Pistons really out-executed indiana derrick rose went to the spread pick and roll with drummond then they were bringing luke Kennard in a spain pick and roll out from the baseline up to the top as rose would run the pick and roll with drummond and really caused problems for the pacers they set up some corner threes with that rose got to the cup on a couple of occasions drummond uh Kennard was awesome he had 30 points uh a lot of those on wide open looks out of that set Drummond looked really good attacking off the dribble from the top of the key. Uh, you know, pretty high usage rate uh, for him. Just you know, and good to see him be as efficient uh, as he was. Also, not great for Sabonis and Turner together. At least down the end of this game, the Pistons were going with Tony Snell at the four, as Markeith Morris was pretty ineffective tonight. He started in Griffin's stead, and they couldn't take advantage. Uh, Pacers really struggled to score down the end. There was one play where Sabonis wasn't being guarded they took away the pick and roll to turner he got open in the corner and just airballed a wide open three that was, i thought that was emblematic of some of their woes down the end of the game yeah it was uh, also a, yeah. another important question for indiana is the backup guard situation oh yeah aaron holiday got seven minutes zero for six from the field a Nikhil alexander walker-esque <laughs> i was gonna make that reference zero yeah. for six from the field then sumner ended up playing 22 minutes tj mcconnell played 13 Nate McMillan's yeah. going to need to see what he can figure out with those guys. Also, very high turnover game, 18 for the Pistons and 15 for the Pacers. But the Pacers only had eight fast break points and nine steals. That's pretty bad. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Oladipo can be a big part of their their urgency in transition, and they do have other guys who can push it, but I think that's going to help. We did see more skill from Miles Turner, including a step-back three where he probably traveled, but just good to see him more empowered. That's something you and I have lamented over the last couple of years is that he can he can do more than he's been asked to, and that could be more important now that he's playing next to DeMontis Simonis. In a continuing theme of... Now, I shouldn't say continuing, because there's actually a lot of coaches, I thought, who played young players more than might have been expected early on, and that's usually the way of it, actually. You'll see guys get chances right at the beginning and then if they prove that it's just not working out it, they'll go back to the vets but in this one christian wood who did make the team over joe johnson only four minutes and goga Bitadze did not play tj leaf only had three minutes so they really staggered turner and sabonis quite a bit but they did go to them together down the end all right that's about all i got on this one cleveland and orlando 
Orlando led by 20 in the first half and walked through to a 94-85 victory. Certainly Cleveland is not a good team, but the Magic defense looked extremely impressive in this one. Jonathan Isaac just looks huge out there uh, and he's gotten stronger. He just covers a ton of ground. He, uh, Aaron Gordon as well. Nick Vucevic was good enough uh, against this Cavs team uh, that weren't really able to make him pay in pick and roll. Um, what did you see from this one? My early takeaway was that Cleveland's defense still looks porous. They ended up with a strong defensive rating, but Orlando missed a bunch of shots that were pretty open. And that's more of a a year-long story to keep an eye on. Granted, it was against the Cavs, but Orlando's bench players were all positive, even though there was, you know, I mean, the Cavs did get it somewhat close late. Markel Fultz, 12 points on 6 of 12 from the field. I believe he made his first four shots, and then it got a little bit worse from there. Most of those were on the basket, but he did have like a 12-foot pull-up that I saw, which was pretty damn exciting. And it tied in with the idea, especially with his six assists, that even a non-shooting Markel Fultz, let's call it that, could still be a useful, productive player and backup point guard was such a big bugaboo for the magic early in the season last year and then go, going away from jerry and grant going to isaiah briscoe and, and mcw really did help them so that's gonna be worth watching bomba played 14 minutes didn't kill them remember that was another storyline yeah. last year and then we saw john beeline play garland and sexton basically as his starting guards you know the, the one of the big questions was are they gonna you know yeah they're gonna probably start and close close games but is it really just a stagger plus you know where those guys separate but then they play those minutes together and no they were the the backcourt combination they used matthew delvadova jordan clarkson really is the backup guards yeah i, I would think they'd do well to stagger those guys uh, at some point in time especially defensively they're real small not that they i mean they don't have a three they basically have one three-sized guy who played in this game that was oshman who actually was plus six in this game amazingly enough in 29 minutes again orlando led by quite a bit after the first half and pretty much cruised in the second half cleveland got it close at the end of the third i mostly watched the first half of this one back to Fultz. this is a really good matchup for him cleveland is a really good matchup for a lot of players but a team with no rim protection and then guards in suxton and garland that he could overwhelm physically uh that really worked well so he was able to get to the basket he had a big dunk and transition finished six to 12 0 of three from three i did not see his three-point attempts but good to see that he at least tried to get him up he also had six assists uh, and two steals he's a part of uh, a positive defensive group for them and yeah the magic really won this game with the bench they surged out at the start of the second quarter when Fultz was in the game when Terrence Ross was in the game so they were running the same action that they love to run for Vucevic and Fournier with that wide pin down out of the corner except they ran it with Ross and Bamba that got Bamba an open three-pointer which he missed but again for him to just play 14 minutes and not kill them Kem Birch didn't play at all uh that's uh that's certainly progress for Cleveland I think Kevin Love is a pretty darn good bet to lead the NBA in defensive rebound percentage this year he had 40 percent defensive rebounds last year in limited minutes about 500 minutes and he had 17 defensive rebounds in 36 minutes tonight uh Kevin Love may also lead the league in pump fakes under the rim this year because he has absolutely zero explosion left he's still trying to get to the foul line was not able to be efficient tonight because he could not do that Uh, only got up one three-point attempt as well which you know this is not a cleveland team known for their passing um looks like they did not play love at center hardly at all again with the lack of wing players that's hard to do tristan thompson who you said actually might have a little bit of a renaissance this year was 16 and 11 in 33 minutes and Um, not much room protection 
yeah Cavs struggled at nine and 34 from three Darius Garland was two of four hit his two threes were both very deep threes off the dribble one of them was a, a step back so he, he had a little bit of flashing but Colin Sexton really struggled at, at five out of 15 was three of eight from three though so he, he continues to be aggressive there but yeah gonna be a long season for the Cavaliers this year this was another great game Th- yeah. this the actually, other think, contender for game of the night yeah well, we could start with so with uh, Timberwolves Nets. Timberwolves won one twenty seven, one twenty six in overtime. Kyrie Irving set an NBA record for the most points ever in a debut game, breaking Kiki Vandaway's record of yeah, forty seven with a new team. Yeah. With a new team, yeah, with fifty seventeen to thirty three from the field, seven to fourteen from three, nine to ten from the line, and some absolutely. I mean, there was that one where he put. I think it was. Tra- I think it was Travion Graham in the mix and just drilled a three on him. But on the other side, Carl Anthony Towns was just unstoppable. I mean, the only thing that stopped him was Andrew Wiggins taking the ball away from him a little bit too much. Thirty six and 14 and also i thought towns not not perfect especially in that third quarter but better overall defensively than i've seen from him in the last couple years yeah i thought especially late in the game he had an effect around the rim had a a few block shots he stopped irving a, a couple of times uh and this is one that i locked into in the fourth quarter towns was seven of 11 for three including step backs they did go to him more i loved for example he just brought the ball up floor and was that isolated at the top off the dribble against jared allen went to a step back out in the air drew three free throws late it was really a towns versus irving duel down the end irving at one point he assisted jared allen and then scored nine straight points two nasty isos against travion graham as you mentioned and then also drew a foul on jeff teague for kind of running up his back as he went over a screen that's irving definitely could stand to improve his foul drawing nine of ten from the foul line really helped him seven assists for him as well and irving was plus 18 in a game that they lost by one that had to be a little frustrating especially because he only played 33 minutes in regulation we know that the nets are very conservative about the amount of minutes that they play now they do have spencer dinwiddie who is one of the best backup point guards in the league to play behind Irving and Irving certainly has his injury issues and frankly it's more important that Kyrie Irving be healthy once Kevin Durant's healthy in the next two years than this year but nonetheless if Irving plays another couple of minutes maybe they win this game Andrew Wiggins as we went to overtime was 8 of 25 and negative 27 in a game that was going to overtime but fortunately for him, he finished negative 26 because they outscored him by one in overtime and Wiggins actually had two big buckets in overtime, but uh, 10 of 27 from the field overall, including some just miserable step backs in the pick and roll with Towns. I think they'd be better off going with Teague running that pick and roll with Towns late in the game or just, you know, let Towns dribble the ball up top and attack. I mean, I thought that was... was uh, really look good for them. They should just do more of that. I was struck by something during this game. I wanted to ask you about it. There are a few other contenders, but do you think Andrew Wiggins is the single player that negatively impacts his team's watchability in, in the league? Like the most negative watchability impact? I, I'd say my instinct is it's him and Brandon Ingram, but I think Wiggins is more stark. Yeah, I think Ingram is, is not as bad. I think he's he still has hope to improve, whereas I, I don't know that Wiggins does. Uh, oh, by the way, Travion Graham made like three enormous plays in overtime. Still struggled to shoot the ball. He was only four out of 13, but probably uh, maybe the Warriors could have used him. And, and, and Shabazz Sh- Napier. Yeah, Napier was only one out of seven, but he was plus 17 in this one. It was uh, also a little worrisome for me that Jarrett Culver with Wiggins and Travion Graham starting only got 16 minutes in this one. He had four points. 
but they definitely have a need and minutes for the taking there the fact that he is not starting as the number six overall pick does not look good especially because i thought kobe white had a really nice debut that's that's something we'll be monitoring for a lot of the year especially with white being younger than culver us I would say a positive on the minutes distribution. On Brooklyn's side, Jared Allen, 36 minutes. DeAndre Jordan, 17. Allen, a better fit for to me to face Carl Anthony Towns with Towns' mobility and his ability to, you know, to use all of the four. But DeAndre Jordan, remember, Durant and Irving were willing to sacrifice significant money to bring him in. And Atkinson had said throughout the preseason that it was going to depend on, on the circumstance. And it was good to see that actually happen. Torian Prince uh, had a nice game uh, with 15 points. He was plus 19. Uh, he actually played 41 minutes, most of anyone on the Nets. Uh, Garrett Temple only played 17 off the bench. They also even gave David Nawaba some time. Rudy Kuroks, who, remember, started last year, only seven minutes for him, and they don't really have a normal-sized power forward. Again, not like the Wolves were playing any normal-sized power forwards either. They got Robert Covington there. Uh, and Jordan, I agree with you, not a great matchup, and but he was negative 12 in 17 minutes, only one field goal attempt, which he missed. So it'd be interesting to watch. There may be other matchups that they like Jordan better in, but this uh, was not one of them. All right, let's take a quick break here before we finish out the rest of the slate. And apropos today that we're doing these quick game recaps, power packed with information because Blinkist is one of our sponsors. The way Blinkist works is they compile the key takeaways from nonfiction books. This is a product that I wished for for many years. I was like, hey, you know, I read these nonfiction books and I spend eight hours reading them or whatever, like a 300 page book. And yeah, the whole point is to kind of improve my life. I'm not necessarily looking for entertainment value, but do I really need eight hours to learn what I'm going to learn from this book? Like, can I recite eight hours worth of facts after I'm done reading it? No, I probably can't. I could probably recite it in about 15 minutes or so. Well, now Blinkist has 15 minute summaries that you can either read or listen to with their app or also check it out on a web browser or your tablet. Everything from health to self-help titles to history, business books, all included in Blinkist library, which continues to grow. And you get unlimited access with them to listen to this massive library of condensed nonfiction books, whether it's The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg, one of my favorite books, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. Blinkist is almost certainly going to have the nonfiction book that you're looking for. So the way you get started with them, you know, it's that slash cat space URL, Blinkist.com slash cat space to try it free for seven days. And, and you would also save 25% off your new subscription when that kicks in. So you're getting the free trial and you're getting the savings. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, like blinking your eye. Blinkist.com slash cat space to start your free seven day trial and save 25% off your subscription don't forget that slash cap space url to let them know that you came from us so this game you didn't get a chance to watch it all i was planning to turn over to it it was pretty close actually through three well yeah it was 84 83 grizzlies yeah and then miami went completely nuts in the fourth quarter 37 17 john morant started off very efficiently and then he was on the floor as they just got completely waxed in that fourth quarter 14 points four assists for him but six turnovers turnovers are going to be a major problem i thought he would be in the top five assists he probably be in the top five in turnovers as well only played 25 minutes it seemed like uh, they wanted to go in another direction there tyus jones his backup uh, was actually plus six in this one jimmy butler did not play due to personal reasons he was a late scratch but he got pretty nice games from kendrick nunn who started in butler's stead and he had a wonderful preseason made the team had some time in camp for the warriors in past years but he has really made himself into a score i'm gonna have to check out how it is that he scored 24 points in 27 minutes a lot of it 
just getting the basket is only two three-pointers so can't tell you much more about this game obviously oh, i have we'll, one other thing i want to talk about yeah okay i i watched a little bit in bits and pieces and somebody who i saw look good was tyus jones tyus jones remember yeah. the the point guard shuffling that happened where tyus jones went from minnesota to memphis then delon wright went from memphis to dallas and minnesota just ended up with with Shabazz napier i thought the offense flowed pretty well in that second unit when jones was out there he ended up with seven assists in 24 minutes and if Memphis can get even just capable play, I mean, John Morant's going to have his ups and downs as a as a rookie in the NBA, but I think that could be a positive for them overall, help make their offense a little bit more stable. And I, I'm interested in what the Miami rotation looks like. I mean, Nunn and Hero aren't going to both start when Jimmy Butler gets back, but a lot of different options for Spo this year, and we can, we can be pretty confident they're going to defend because Miami always does. Oh, and that dunk Derek Jones had on Valanciunas. Holy crap. Oh, man, I haven't seen that yet. I, I really need to, need to catch up on this one. Uh, seven hours worth of basketball. Did not have, quite have a chance uh, to watch this one yet. But also very much worth noting, 120 to 101, you'd think, ah, you know, pretty amazingly efficient offensive game for Miami. This game was a ridiculous pace. If you used to watch the Grizzlies back in the grit and grind era, that is not that anymore. 113 possessions for Memphis now. They... uh only scored 101 so they had an 89 offensive rating and they really struggled in that fourth quarter philly and boston this is actually another one that i didn't catch a ton of as philly just kind of pulled away inexorably in the second half but boston really really struggled to score i think this is one that probably fell most into my expectations uh philly's defense looks like an absolute monster and ben simmons whose foible used to be the celtics well jalen brown got four fouls in the first half and Brad Stevens generally doesn't eschew to foul trouble, but even he, I think, had to deal with it with four fouls in the first half for Braun. And then Simmons foil Al Horford is now on his own team, and so they had absolutely nobody to stop him. He went completely nuts. A, a lot of his buckets were just transition. Celtics just didn't have enough bodies to load to, to him, and he just went right in for a nice little right-handed floater as he likes to go to that right hand and uh, looked pretty good. That was uh, my big takeaway there is that uh, Simmons looked more aggressive, played 35 minutes. Joel Embiid, only 23 minutes in this one. He battled some foul trouble, but they didn't particularly need him. Philly struggled from downtown as they did in the preseason. That's going to be an ongoing concern for them. I think their games are going to be pretty ugly when Simmons isn't getting out in transition. But this defense is just going to be an absolute bear to deal with when they've got everyone healthy. Right. I watched a fair amount of the first half and kept on vacillating between two different ideas. One is, oh my God, their defense is going to be incredible. And then the other one was their offense has some big flaws, especially that there are so few capable shooters. And it'll they'll have to kind of reconcile that. I don't think either of those dynamics is going to change dramatically over the course of the season, but their defense is monstrous. Also, only really in the competitive portion of the game, only four players came off the bench for Brett Brown. The leader in minutes, Matisse Thibel, 22, and had some nice defense. He got a couple of those young man fouls on Kemba Walker early, but I thought he did a better job when I watched him a little bit later. Furkan Korkmaz, Mike Scott, and James Ennis. Not a huge surprise, though. I expect one of Hal Neto and Trey Burke to eventually get into that rotation just as a as secondary option, you know, ball handler when Ben Simmons off the floor. That can start to change. And then Brad Stevens really primarily went with six guys, Marcus Smart being the sixth man in this one, but then tried out a bunch of other players, including Carson Edwards, in at various moments in the game. Boston also took 42s outside the restricted area in this game, continuing a, a issue that they had last season. And they somewhat similar personnel. Cantor did provide them a little bit more of an element inside, but 
Uh, he was negative 12 in 25 minutes. Daniel Tice always gets totally overwhelmed uh, by Philly's physicality. He doesn't really work very well against them. Brad Stevens did go very deep into his bench. He ended up playing 12 guys in the first half. And uh, something that I think we've seen this is the case in Charlotte and, and Chicago to some degree as well. A coach who's with these truncated preseasons, maybe it's just a, there was foul trouble as well, obviously, but he was trying to give guys a chance early in the season and see uh, who's going to be able to get something done. But uh, nobody really could in this one. Kemba Walker, massive struggle for him at four of 18. And Philly used to be very vulnerable. Remember, he, Kemba put up 60 on them last year. They used to be very vulnerable to pick and roll point guards. Now that they have Josh Richardson and they have these other great defenders, not nearly as much of an issue in this one Kemba he took 10 of those 42s outside the restricted areas one of six on floaters one of four on true mid-rangers outside the paint and one of six on threes all of those were above the break so not a great debut for him not a great world cup for Kemba Walker uh he'll certainly have better days this is I mean you got to remember the opponent on this yeah, one yeah to me there are some parallels here with the Lakers against the Clippers last night where they're facing a team that is a really tough matchup and so I don't want to go too crazy with with having some of those rough things even if they can they line up with some of the criticisms that we've had of them before so we'll just kind of have to keep an eye on it moving forward and see Boston against somebody else but if they want to this is a reminder to me that if Boston wants to get into the rarefied air they're going to have to get a lot better and I don't think that's going to happen this year yeah they shot seven to 26 on threes and only got up three corner threes so that shows that they were having to take a lot of pretty difficult attempts off the dribble Jason Tatum was four of eight on threes uh a few of them above the break off the dribble shots which were nice but then really struggled to get anything done inside the arc and gordon hayward though did have a nice game he was the one bright spot in 35 minutes 25 points i thought he looked much more spry uh, in the minutes that i did see him play and he got to the foul line which is something that uh they desperately need from him I also thought Robert Williams, although he did have four fouls in 11 minutes, he did flash. He had a pretty nasty block of a Simmons hook shot when he flashed across the lane and got up for a big alley-oop. But he definitely has the physical tools to make a difference for this team. It's just whether he uh, can really grasp the game mentally. Washington and Dallas, I saw very little of this one. How much did you see? More than a little because I was so fascinated with Washington actually having the first quarter lead. It was just kind of a, a little bit of a disjointed, weird game. There were a lot of travels called in the early early going, but eventually Dallas took control, especially in that second quarter, which was 38-23. I thought Luka Doncic looked great. 34 points, 12-9 from the field, 4-9 from three. Had some nice passes as well. Did turn it over six times. And then Porzingis, you know, first regular season action since he tore his ACL basically a year and a half ago. I thought that he looked pretty good, you know, not 100% yet, but also had a beautiful finish from on pass from Jalen Brunson, which functionally ended the game. So some positive signs for Dallas in terms of where they could be. They're not there yet. You know, it's going to take take a little bit of time. And we also saw, I've talked about this with a couple different coaches, about the the idea that they're going to coach and change their starting lineup based on feel. Really prominent example of that in this one with Courtney Lee. Courtney Lee didn't play much in the preseason closer for the Dallas Mavericks, then started and played 16 minutes. That was presumably due to the matchups and Washington being a little bigger, Lee potentially guarding Bradley Beal, who ended up getting ejected off of a, he had a little bit of a, a little bit of a, you know, 
thing with Luca late in the game, and then he waved off the official, so they gave him a second tee and tossed him. The game was basically over already. Um, Rui Hachimura in his debut, 14 points, 7-15 from the field. He's very, you know, very confident with his mid-range shot. I, I want to kind of keep an eye on that moving forward. It's just a hard diet in the NBA, but he did have some nice moments there. And then Beal, 19 points, 7-25 from the field, 1-11 of 11 from 3. Davis Bertans, the leading leading minutes guy off the bench. I mean, the Wizards, to me, the they'll have some games where they look feisty, but they're just not that good. Yeah, they actually defended a little bit better than mm-hmm. might have been expected in this game. And Beal had a massive struggle, 7-25, did have nine assists. Bertans got cooked repeatedly in ISO by Luka who was four of nine he had some nasty setbacks uh in mean, this starting lineup for the wizard i mean isaac bonga started who was like too inexperienced to like play sometimes in the g league for the lakers he's like one of the youngest guy in the draft last year uh he's playing at the three wizards did somehow manage to get up 41 three-point attempts though they did not hit very many of them 11 of those were from beal their bench has more shooting with Bertanza and Wagner. Well, yeah, that, that's they, actually that's actually quite the stat. The Wizards starting five went three for twenty two. If I'm doing the math correctly, from three, you are. That's bad. Oh wait, no, you're not. It's uh, three. Oh yeah, no, you are. Three. You said three for twenty two. Yeah, I did. God, this is terrible radio. <laughs> and uh, the, nothing, nothing is worse than when you're the the officious Ashel pointing things out and then you're not even right. Well, and then two other <laughs> uh, kind of injury related notes in this one Wagner had missed time due to injury in the preseason he did play 17 minutes and then Tim Hardaway Jr. had an ankle issue but I believe he returned to the game as well ended up with 17 minutes off the or sorry 21 minutes off the bench also maybe noteworthy Porzingis only 29 minutes in a game that was close enough for him to be playing more do we know Dwight Powell did not play uh, due to the hamstring issue? Second in the team in minutes for Dallas was Dorian Finney-Smith uh, playing uh, as a backup forward. And then the backup point guard for the Wizards was Chris Chioza, not Justin Robinson. San Antonio eventually pulled away from New York. A lot of yo-yoing in this game. San Antonio led pretty comfortably in the first half. The Knicks uh, surged out to a seven-point lead of their own. And then the Spurs came back, hung 37 on them in both the second and fourth quarters. The offense was find the guy that Kevin Knox is guarding and go to him. And they did that basically for four buckets in a row during uh, their run. But I think really encouraging for... The Knicks uh, was that R.J. Barrett had an excellent game in this one. Yeah, I mean, Barrett was able to to generate reliable offense, 21 points, 9-13 from the field, only turned it over three times, had two assists, and, you know, he didn't, he ended up with five rebounds. So you and I both like him as a rebounder. To me, the dominant part of this game, and it seems anomalous from both teams' perspectives, is San Antonio turned the ball over so much during this game. The Knicks had 16 steals. And the San Antonio, you know, that was a part of how they defied NBA yeah. orthodoxy I, I mean, last year. Like Julius Randle, Marcus Morris, Bobby Portis, you know, well-known sharks <laughs> just taking it away. Uh, Alfred Payton did have five steals. Yeah, he that's more that's, shark, that's but, more in line, actually, even though five is a lot. Yeah, uh, but the Spurs generally uh, are not a team that turns it over a ton, but DeRozan and Aldridge both had four turnovers. Those guys are, are well-known for not turning the ball over. DeRozan had a massive struggle until he got guarded by Kevin Knox in, in the fourth quarter, and he was able to get going just enough. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, was, he didn't score until the third quarter, I think. So, um, but yeah, Barrett. 37 minutes leading the Knicks. He looks like he's going to be their number one option. 
9 of 13, 21 points, uh, 5 of 5 at the rim. He, he was able to use that bullying style uh, to get to the basket. Uh, Spurs did not have a lot of answers for him. San Antonio only played DeJounte Murray 24 minutes, but he looked great uh, himself. This is a Knicks team without Mitchell Robinson in this game, so Murray uh, was able to get to the basket, especially when Taj Gibson was out of the game. Uh, Murray also had three steals of his own. He basically just failed Frank Nilakina out of the game who had played three minutes in the second half and had two two turnovers both of when he was guarded by DeJounte Murray and couldn't even enter the ball into the wing he just got it stolen so he was taken out of the game immediately uh Alfred Payton is the Knicks point guard du jour I'd imagine he'd start in the next game he had 26 minutes and was plus 14 and Alonzo Trier actually started at point guard and he got the ultra bogans with seven minutes to start the game and did not come back in Knox did shoot it pretty well uh, but as mentioned it was a real struggle for him defensively Dennis Smith Jr. only played 10 minutes I don't know if he even played in the second half and he really struggled also so we'll see it's going to be a work in progress for the Knicks but it looks like with the three guys who are the main stalwarts here is Marcus Morris 39 minutes Randall 35 Barrett 37 and even Bobby Portis played 33 so those are we'll see what happens to the front court rotation when Robinson comes back doesn't sound like a long-term injury uh for him um anything else that popped out to you uh no I think that's it from here we can move oh, to- oh I do have uh, one more Trey Lyles started oh for yeah the that's and I think, and DeRozan started at the three. Lyles does provide a spacing element, if not a shooting element. The Spurs did not get up a ton of threes. That is, should be no surprise. Uh, Bryn Forbes had a huge game with 20 points uh, as well. I mean, he just provides such a critical element for them just uh, in terms of fit. But that'll be interesting to see uh, how much Pop changes things around. I mean, this is a group with Portis and Randall where you might they might have started Pirtle and Aldridge. Maybe they felt like they needed some more quickness, uh, but... The Spurs are, you know, that's a really small group for them. You know, I hope their defense would be improved this year, but if they're going to start DeRozan and Lyles and Forbes all together, I don't know if DeJounte Murray is going to be enough to save them defensively. Uh, I did not see a single second of this game. What do you got on OKC and Utah? I'm sure there are people who will pile on Mike Conley for his one of 16 from the field. And yeah, there were some concerning elements there, especially considering Conley did not take a shot in the restricted area. He was a lot, a lot of, from kind of floater range, and then he missed a bunch of threes. But you could see the benefit of having him on the team for Donovan Mitchell throughout because, shockingly enough, opponents are still going to guard by Conley, even if he happened to have missed more shots in this game than usual. That helped Donovan Mitchell go absolutely off. 32 points 14 to 22 from the field almost all of that inside the arc and late in the game he ended up with five offensive rebounds it felt like all of those happened in the last like two three minutes there he played volleyball a couple times ended up with some big finishes gobert played well overall defensively to me and okay see i you know this kind of ties in with the idea i've been i've been banging this drum all off season that i think they're a better team than people think but that doesn't mean they're going to win every game and Shea, I thought he looked good, confident with the ball in his hands. Gallo had some nice offensive moments, surprise, surprise. And then Hamadou Diallo, more confident driving in this one. He ended up 5 of 8 from the field. And it's it's kind of something you see. I mean, we'll have to kind of wonder if this happens with Terrence Ferguson, who didn't take a shot in 24 minutes. But sometimes these lower usage guys take a little bit of time. They get in the league. They get a little bit more confident, work with the development coaches. And I, I'm, I want to see if that happens with Hamadou Diallo. A um, couple other takeaways. Emmanuel 
Moutier looked good overall. I, I, th- I thought he did a nice job, made some made some smart decisions. Yeah, didn't he, make... he had to play a lot with Conley uh, in foul trouble. Yes, why he did. Conley only played the 27 Yeah, that's minutes. why Conley only played the 27. And Moutier didn't make many mistakes, which is very useful for the Jazz because they have a lot of capable players. Zero turnovers, five assists. I thought he looked good. Jeff Green got hurt because Schroeder... He Schroeder got the charge call, but that's exactly why you don't want the rule in place because Schroeder's instinct was to get in the way of a jumping player and that could cause injuries. Schroeder, that was one of his best defensive plays. I thought he he was a real sieve at moments in late in the game, especially that helped get Donovan Mitchell going at some in in the fourth quarter. Schroeder one of eight from the field, though he did have four assists and six rebounds. So yeah, and Steven Adams, it was a, a kind of a weird one for him. We I want to track his defensive rebounds. He ended up with eight in, in the first game of the non-Russell Westbrook era, but he also missed five of his six free throws and seven of his eight shots from the field. So yeah, playing Rudy Gobert is a little bit different, though Rudy Gobert's not jumping around defending his free throws. So we'll have to keep an eye on all that. A number of interesting things that stuck out from the stat line. First of all, Chris Paul in a competitive game, 30 minutes. I think that's about where he's going to be most of the season, but he was uh, quite excellent there. Four of seven from three, 22 points. Shea was three of seven from three. That's uh, encouraging to see him getting up that many three-pointers. But Rudy Gobert certainly dominated defensively. Six out of 16 in the restricted area. That is a comically low number of shots and a comically low number of things. I mean, six makes in the restricted area. That's like one of the lowest numbers I've ever seen in my life. Like that, that could be like close to a record. I mean, I don't have a way to look that up, but that's absolutely an insane number. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich sprained his ankle, uh, only played 24 minutes. And remember how the Jazz were like, oh yeah, they're going to get all these open three-point looks and make them now? Ah, they're 6-24 from three. <laughs> uh, and Conley, as you mentioned, struggled. They'll have better shooting nights. Um, but it actually wasn't this, the OKC defense was pretty good utah had such a good job avoiding mid-rangers during the regular season last year they had to take a ton of them in this game only 24 three-point attempts is not that many but uh at least one nice part of the spacing was that mitchell was able to get to the rim a ton still doesn't seem to ever get fouled but he is seven of 11 at the cup which was uh pretty excellent there yeah Uh, um somebody else i want to single out for praise is royce o'neill the fifth starter, and he played an, a really nice role in the closing time. Six of six from the field, two of two from three, and he had two important plays in the late going. One was a really quick read. He was above the break from three. He didn't really have the window for it, but threw a, a pass over to Mike Conley in the corner. If Conley had hit that a wide open three, it would have sealed things a little bit earlier for the Jazz, but he missed it. Then Royce Neal made a three of his own later on, and if he can fill that kind of like Jay Crowder defensive forward role that also, you know, does the right things and opportunity moments i think that could be just a, a really important part for the jazz and then they don't have to rely as much on some of the other guys suns kings uh, i watched nearly the entire ha- second half of this one until it got out of hand and well and i'll, I'll mention just briefly well. we're probably going to do a lot of that with the sacramento kings because they're a fun team to watch and they, well they weren't tonight they weren't, to, I, they I weren't tonight you that and because they there aren't that many teams in the Pacific time zone. And so, especially on nights that were that, that the, aren't primetime nights, they're going to have a lot of these. And yeah, I mean, well, I'll start this off with what I thought really swung the game was about two minutes into the third quarter, De'Aaron Fox picks up his fourth foul, and then he sits the rest of the third quarter and the Suns actually absolutely kicked the King's ass. Oh yeah. They outscored them 70 to 36 in the second half. And the Kings were atrocious taking care of the ball. Heald had five turnovers. So did Fox. Harrison Barnes usually avoids turnovers. He had four turnovers. 
Corey Joseph, their other point guard, had 326 turnovers in total, turned it over on well over 20% of their possessions. That led to the Suns' 27 to 11 fast break point edge. 35 to 6 in turnovers. In turnovers. Yeah. And, and a ton of those were live ball as well. So, and, but just some like absolutely asinine passes from the Suns. Now, granted, this, or, or from the Kings, I should say, the Suns actually had a lot of good pressure. I mean, this is, you'll remember, of course, they had a blowout win of the Mavs last year in the Aiton versus Doncic game when Doncic struggled, but that was 19 to 34 three point shooting. The Suns actually really struggled from three until Tyler Johnson caught fire and so did amazingly enough javon carter who played 18 minutes uh, with ty jerome out they played tyler johnson entirely as a backup two rather than a, a backup warning where i thought he would play more uh sun's bench looked pretty good mikhail bridges came off the bench with some hounding defense devin booker started off very slowly but came on to 22 points and 10 assists uh, he was efficient by the end didn't get up a ton of threes and I, I really liked DeAndre Eaton compared to last year. You know, he, he had four block shots, which I think tied his career high. Uh, my guy, Ricardo Foyce, former dunked on guest, uh, maybe doing some good work with him. So he had the four blocks, also had numerous plays where he was actually getting his chest on on guys. He had a play where Buddy Heald came off a screen. He switched onto him to avoid giving up an open three and an emergency switch. That looked pretty good. Uh, and Eaton provided his usual efficient brand of offense as well with 18 points didn't get to the foul line that's something he needs to do more of but uh had a couple of nice one-on-one moves also but like you said it was really fox getting his third foul with the kings having a comfortable lead at the end of the second quarter and then they got completely blitzed in the third that was the problem marvin bagley did not have a, a good game 16 field goal attempts he was very efficient last year but only 14 points he, uh, when it was he and Deadman in the game together, they were guarding Deadman with the power forward, putting the center on Bagley, and Aiton uh, did a pretty good job on him one on one. Deadman, I was annoyed, only played 14 minutes. Rashawn Holmes played 17. We saw more of Bielitsa than expected with 21 minutes. We thought he may, might be out of the rotation. We also saw more of Trevor Ariza than expected with 21 minutes. Again, not quite as much uh, as I thought we would see from him. So Ariza, Bielitsa, and Holmes playing a lot. This is another one where it seemed like they're giving a lot of minutes uh, to these guys off the bench, and Luke Walton may have to cut down his rotation a little bit. So we'll see what the Kings look like when De'Aaron Fox plays the whole game. But they are going to have some issues to start on. I think playing Deadman more uh, might be a, a place to start there for them. Well, and getting rocked in the fourth quarter doesn't exactly bode as well because if it had just been the third and then they'd made their way back, it would I'd feel a little bit differently yeah. about it. Yeah, Fox and, came back in and they uh, down ten and they just continued getting work. They got exactly. doubled up in that fourth quarter. Yeah, and I, I probably because I've tried to black out everything other than Booker and Aiton off of last year's Suns. I'd forgotten that Ariza and Rashawn Holmes both were both Suns last year, at least at the start of the year, yeah. and both of them to me looked flawed. You know, that it was a reminder of something we talked about with phoenix where getting competent nba players is an important step holmes just doesn't have those defensive instincts i think that's probably he, he did have a couple of nice plays like to be sure and then ariza 
he's at least washed adjacent and that's a yeah concern. he can't he has zero explosion at the basket anymore that's for sure yeah and so they do have other options bogdan bogdanovich just had a rough game couldn't get a shot to fall made the first shot of his of the third quarter and then that was the only one of the entire game he was one for 10 from the field they were outscored by 24 points in his 22 minutes so i i wouldn't take too much away from this from sacramento's perspective it's it's definitely doesn't help and it's a loss for a team that you know might if in the best case scenarios they're probably close in the competition in the west playoffs but the suns more positives for them competence really at, at just a higher proportion was a really big help javon carter hit two big threes at the end of the third quarter those were two of his three makes in the game and booker had a rough start but then got back into it so you know i i, I think the I, the idea of them maybe the suns winning in the mid-30s is a little bit robust remember i was skeptical of the kings last year too and they ended up doing a lot better than i expected but the, the suns will unambiguously be significantly better than last year yeah aaron baines only played 10 minutes, but I thought he really added something for them. Frank Kaminsky looked fine. That was the signing we were skeptical of, but he is a, played as the backup power forward. So, you know, they're not going to get that type of a game out of Javon Carter every night. Um, but, I mean, they just looked significantly improved defensively. I mean, when, when you're coming off the bench with Bridges, Baines, Carter, who is a very good defensive player, Tyler Johnson, I mean, that's like a pretty good defensive second unit. And if Aiton is not going to get killed defensively, all of a sudden this team looks a lot better. But again, only one game, but some positive signs for the Suns to be sure. Last in, Denver 108, Portland 100, and Nikola Jokic got three fouls very early on. Three minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah, he picked up a foul on the point of education, which uh, you and I are both very high on for the off-arm shove-off, and that is being called a lot more. Jokic is one of the foremost practitioners of that on his post-ups. He got called for it, rightfully so, and sat for basically the rest of the half but finished up plus 14 in the game, had 20 points in his 24 minutes. But the key shots for him were three three-pointers, including two back-to-back in the fourth quarter. That forced Hassan Whiteside, who played well, off the floor. They went with Collins at center and Kent Bazemore at the four, Hood at the three, to close it. It was pretty even after that point. Denver put up 35 in the fourth quarter these teams usually despite being two high-powered offensive teams and teams that aren't that good defensively for whatever reason seem to guard each other pretty well that goes back to that playoff series last year you know nobody it wasn't like a crazy offensive series the way i thought it was going to be so that continued in this one it seemed like portland was really outplaying denver in part because Jokic played so little but denver was 18 of 32 from downtown jamal murray was one of eight from two but three of six from three and Tory Craig, Jeremy Grant, who played 21 minutes, and Beasley were off their bench, were a combined six out of nine from downtown. That's really what helped them stay in it early on. Another, at least to me, surprising development of this game, former trailblazer Will Barton got to the free throw line 12 times. Yeah, was, weird game for him. It was almost half of the Blazer, or sorry, the Nuggets' entire total because they had 27. And those were 11 of his 19 points. He was three of eight from the field outside of that. I have to mention Scal, the center off the bench, played 11 minutes, eight yeah. and six. I thought he actually looked pretty good. And Traded straight up for Caleb Swanigan, by the way. Caleb Swanigan, who, yeah, who, I, again, he is a- He's still in the league. He still plays for the Sacramento Kings. Caleb Swanigan could be a great example. I, I don't think we've seen the option decision on him. I've talked, you know, at length about the idea that if you decline an option on a guy, you should be ready to cut them right away. Because if he's not good enough to be on your team next year, then you might as well just have somebody else for the minimum. Yeah, and, and 
I mean, who knows? Maybe that I, I, he's also, uh, hasn't stayed in the best condition, which was an yeah. issue for him. He, he was in good condition after the draft, but, uh, it's kind of fallen out as his, his career has started to sunset a little bit here. I wanted to throw something, throw something at you. So with Whiteside, I agree with you that he looked good overall in this game, and he is a wonderful fit for the drop back scheme that Terry Stotts plays. However, this game was a reminder at a couple different moments that there will be times this year that that style just won't work. And when Whiteside was out of that sort of a dropback mold, he got into trouble. One of those was sure. Jamal Murray r- realized that Hassan Whiteside was on him, dribbled the ball all the way back, and then just basically ran straight by him. And that will happen sometimes to Hassan. And then you mentioned the stuff with, with Jokic. I was thinking, you know, about Carl Anthony Towns and all that. And you could yeah, say uh, those uh, the, those are the exceptions. That I mean, the rule. Y- you might say that, but if Denver doesn't shoot just this preposterous percentage, and they're not like some awesome three-point shooting team necessarily. Like, yeah. Portland probably wins this game pretty comfortably. I mean, but I mean, Denver, if, if Jokic doesn't sit for the entire first quarter, then I think yeah. Denver wins a game. Well, win. yeah, but like, I mean, Hassan Whiteside was a big part of Denver shooting thirty three percent from two. Sure, yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I thought he took up space in there, and you know, sixteen and nineteen in twenty six minutes. Yeah, points and rebounds. I get it, but I mean, to do that in twenty six minutes uh, is pretty good. And you know, he wasn't like a negative for them. Yeah, at the end of games, maybe against certain teams, it could be trouble. I mean, I wasn't even sure that with those two shots from Jokic, I mean, that that's when Stotts took him out, that they maybe that was a little bit of an overreaction because they had been defending well with him out there. But um, yeah, now CJ McCollum had a real struggle. Lillard struggled early and then came on late, for, ended up with 32 points and eight assists. Uh, Blazers offense uh, was not pretty though. 13 assists on 36 made field goals and... They, of course, you know, a lot of your assisted buckets are going to be threes, and some of their guys struggled. Anthony Simons only played 12 minutes off the bench. I think he played all of his minutes, at least in the second half. I didn't see his minutes in the first half, with either Dame or CJ next to him, which is probably a good idea for him at this point in time. You don't want to put him in the Nikhil Alexander-Walker role of having to create everything on the second unit, and he's not really ready to do that yet, so uh Kent Bazemore had a real struggle uh, in his first game offensively I thought he was great defensively yes yes that's true yeah thanks for clarifying that he had five steals and, and forced another couple of turnovers uh, um and, and they're I think they're gonna need his defense he's just gonna have to hit shots yeah I, I I am of the belief and I'll say this right now that I think Bazemore makes sense for them as as a starter just because adding his defense you know it could be matchup dependent and you know hood hood helps but I don't think he helps that much but something else that's yeah. remarkable with this Blazers schedule I don't generally spend too much time because they don't have the time to look at him preseason they only play one more home game between now and november 8th and that home game is against philly so have fun with that oh they're traveling to some of the texas teams to the some of the california teams it's going to be a rough go of it for them at the start they can win those games because they're a good team but we'll see how how they yeah. how how they interpret if it ends up starting poorly yeah this is one that they definitely could have used they should have been favored in this game um denver when we saw no centers on the floor they did pretty well during that period in the first half and yeah that's about all i've got here i mean i'm not going to change my opinion oh michael port jr didn't play at all Juan Herman, Juancho Herman gomez didn't play at all tory craig who played pretty well in this game by the way uh was ahead of both of those guys in the rotation so but even with Jokic and foul trouble you thought maybe that could open up some power forward minutes but that that was not the case and you know porter jr i'm not saying he's not going to contribute this year but He's got an uphill battle to make it into this rotation. This is a really deep team, and you're really going to have to execute defensively. And But it had to be tough for him to sit out an entire year and then not play at all uh, in this game. But, you know, he'll have maybe some chances at, in home games and against opposition that's not as good. I know they wanted to get off to a, a big start, especially against the team that they lost to in the playoffs last year. 
So let's take a quick break here to tell you about Ancient Nutrition's multi-collagen protein. Note that the following statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you aware that your skin, hair, nails, and connective tissues are all made from collagen? And as a general principle, once you turn 30, your body naturally slows its production of collagen. That's why Dr. Josh Axe created multi-collagen protein which helps support healthy skin, joint health, a healthy gut, and healthy nails. This is a flavorless powder you can take in a glass of water or your coffee, throw it into a smoothie as well. It features five collagen types rather than one to two that you might see in other brands. And it's made from four food sources, beef, chicken, fish, and eggshell membrane, all from non-GMO, grass-fed, cage-free, and cruelty-free sources. It works for me when I go with my all-protein diet. It contains nine grams of protein, zero grams of carbs or fat. It's the one multi-collagen protein praised by Better Nutrition, Women's Health, and many more. The way to get started with them and get $10 off your multi-collagen protein is at ancientnutrition.com. Yeah, ancientnutrition.com. The doctors called it that because they wanted to restore how our ancestors ate in modern diets. Ancientnutrition.com, promo code CATSPACE. Easy to remember, of course. We talk about CATSPACE all the time here on the program. That's a special offer for Dunktown listeners. Get $10 off at ancientnutrition.com. And don't forget that CATSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. All right, Danny, you ready to finish up our predictions here? Yeah, let's do it. And as a quick note before we really get started, Nate and I focus these on who will deserve the award, not who will actually get it. If we choose to say the other one, we will. But remember that. So if we're, you know, like, for example, Rookie of the Year or Sixth Man of the Year, we're predicting who we think will be the best Sixth Man, not necessarily who will be holding the hardware in, I guess that's June now with the awards ceremony thing. Yes, a fascinating event, which I watch dutifully every single year. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm anti-award shows. I don't watch the Oscars either. I can read who won. I don't need to see what everyone was wearing. Probably better to spend a little time with my wife after the NBA Finals are over instead of watching that. Okay, if you missed it yesterday, we did the first part of our awards, but let's get right back to it here. Defensive Player of the Year, three spots on the ballot. Who you got? So this is an important distinction between deserves and will receive. I, I think in terms of, so again, for me, this is most outstanding, or you can think of it as like who provides the greatest defensive difference over a replacement player. And I'm going to go with Rudy Gobert for now. I don't expect that he will win the award partially due to voter fatigue and because I think the Jazz are going to have a worse defense this year. But he has a harder job to do now that they've functionally replaced Derek Favors with Bogdanovich and replaced Ricky Rubio with, with Mike Conley. I think it's just a lot more on his shoulders. I think Gobert will do a very good job with that. So he's my number one. And what was interesting to me is not only do I have a pretty strong two and three, but there are a lot of guys that I think could work their way into this conversation, depending on how this year goes. Yeah, there are. And for me, the typical guys you would focus on were Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green. Those guys just have so much work to do this year that it's going to be hard for their... It's really hard for me to pick a defensive player of the year if their team isn't defending at a top five level with them on the floor. Now, if the Warriors get to like 10th somehow when Draymond's on the floor, they might actually seriously consider him. But I, like I've said before, I'm not sure he works that well propping up a really bad defense compared to someone like a, a Gobert. My number one is going to be Giannis. I think he was my number two last year. I think the Bucks are my pick to be either the number one or number two regular season defense. He is a massive, massive part of that. They've always defended much better with him on the floor. 
and he's got a ton of versatility also excellent defensive rebounder helped out by the lopez brothers boxing out next to him so uh, he's going to be my pick again i don't think he's the best per possession playoff defender in the league but especially because i think he's a, a pretty decent bet to play a lot of games as well i would go with him uh, my number two is Joel Embiid. Again, I think the Bucks and Sixers are going to be the two best defenses in the NBA. And I think Joel is just going to look really, really good in that Philly system. May not play enough games. That would open the door for my number three, which would still be Gobert. I mean, he didn't lose all of his defensive skill because they don't have as much around him now. And if he gets this Jazz team to a top five defense, you know, he'll probably end up being my pick. I'm just not quite sure he, he's going to get him there. So uh, those are my three. And Miles Turner, who uh, was figured in this discussion last year he's another guy who just has less around him this year if the pacers are are able to be a pretty good defense then he'll be right in it as well uh we haven't mentioned anthony davis at all what do you think his chances are or not his chances but but his uh well, so I think he'll have a good argument if the Lakers end up with a strong defense. This is something you and I disagreed on. I think that was in the over-under podcast we talked about that. But Davis will presumably receive the line share. We're recording this after Lakers-Clippers when we saw some of their transition defense issues and numerous other things. But yeah, I mean, if they do well, Davis gets the line share of the credit. For me, the argument with him is kind of similar to Draymond Green, where if it works, he's probably the reason why. Turner, you brought up... <clears throat> It's possible that Pascal Siakam has too large of an offensive role to be the defensive force that he's been at times, but I could see, I I think the Raptors are going to have a really good defense again. I could see him getting a lot of the credit for that, even though it is a team effort with Marcus Ole and and Baca and everybody else. And then two kind of deeper flyers. I'm not saying either one of them is going to win, but... I'm imagining that we might hear some arguments for Hassan Whiteside if the Blazers end up doing well. I'm not, again, I'm not sure that they will, but I think that he's such a perfect fit for Terry Stott's system. And then I'm just going to have him in the back of my mind. It was the guy picked for breakout player on the podcast with Men Taylor. If the Knicks do anything on defense, I think it'll be because Mitchell Robinson took another big step forward. I think he has the physical tools to do it probably a year or two away from that point. But I wanted to mention him just in case. One more possibility for me, Bam Adebayo. He's going to have that starting center position all alone. I expect Miami to be a really good defense. So he's someone to watch out for, though. Jimmy Butler, Justice Winslow, a lot of the other guys uh, that they have uh, are going to be a big part of that as well. Paul George, probably not going to play enough games. He was in the conversation at times uh, over the last few years. Kawhi, to me, looked better than he did in the playoffs uh, last night, but I don't expect him to be in the conversation either. Again, games played a, a big part of that. So yeah, Giannis one, Embiid two, Gobert three. But again, these are ones where I think it could be in in any order. And and as far as who will win it, I I think Giannis is the number one pick to me just because, again, I think the Bucs are going to be the best defense. Um, Sixth man of the year. Eight billion candidates here per usual. I enjoyed Seth Hartnow's preview where he just wrote for sixth man of the year, yay points for his prediction. But we, of course, uh, are not so reductive here. We actually think we're going to try and find whoever has the most value coming off the bench uh, of any player. And I'm going to go with the guy who would have won it for me last year if he had been healthy the whole year. That's Spencer Dinwiddie. Dinwiddie is a great choice. I wonder about how the ecosystem is going to work with the Nets guard rotation, but he's certainly a good argument. And I would say the other competition there, the, the top end competition, the yay points champion of all champions, Lou Williams. But Lou Williams was also huge last year. I mean, he the, the role that he had as the linchpin of the Clippers offense and often closing games for them was huge. Like that is, you know, kind of the, in many ways, the archetypal sixth man. And then somebody who I think is a sleeper candidate, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he wins it for both of us, but does not win the award, is Thaddeus Young. 
Young could be the defensive difference maker for the Bulls. Probably not going to start because of the Markkanen-Wendell Carter combo, but paralleling the Andre Guadalla times with the Warriors where he was one of the team's best players, they were better when he was on the floor, I could see Thaddeus Young filling that spot for the Young Bulls. Yeah, absolutely. He was on my list of candidates. My number two is Marcus Smart, assuming that he does not start more than half the games in Boston. And similar logic for J.J. Redick at number three with the Pels, assuming that Zion comes back and Redick does not start more than half the games. He, he would, in theory, be eligible. The Clippers, the two Clippers guys obviously are right up there for me as well. Maxi Kleba in Dallas is someone that I considered. Again, he's going to start, but assuming he comes off the bench, and Dwight Powell I think that he could have a lot of value Jeremy Grant another one of these defensive forwards in Denver Derek Rose I think is going to close a lot of games for Detroit and he's going to have all he can eat offensively you would imagine Eric Gordon it looks like is actually not going to start the year for I mean he's going to start the year but he's not going to start at the start of the year for Houston so certainly if that persists which I don't think it will uh, he would be in there Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, another guy who, especially if he can just take a little bit of a step forward in efficiency, I've always liked his defense uh, and playmaking, could get onto this list uh, as well. Serge Ibaka in Toronto maybe won't play quite enough minutes, but it looks like Serge is going to play together with Marcus Old because Nick Nurse, if last night is any indication, only has seven guys, seven and a half guys that he trusts. So to deal with that, you have to play Ibaka and Gasol together. Uh, and then Joe Ingles in Utah as well. Looks like he's going to be coming off the bench. Uh, he adds a lot for them. So lots of, of players who are really good, different flavors of player, your pure score type or your kind of defensively more versatile type of player. Uh, seems like those are the two types of players that we're looking at here. Anything to add there? Or should we move on to rookie of the year? No, I mean, our lists are pretty similar. I went Dinwiddie, Smart, Williams, and then the also considered were pretty similar there. So we can move on to rookie of the year. I would say the big question here is whether Zion will actually kind of quote-unquote qualify. There is no rigid requirement here. I've generally had a more loose rule, as listeners know over the years, with these and all NBA too, where basically if a guy plays enough, I usually define that as 45 to 50 games and is good enough, then then I will vote them in. And Zion, I mean, if he's already missing 20-something games now, much less any maintenance or any subsequent injuries. I I imagine it's going to be 30 games if he misses the eight weeks. It very well could be. And so then then we're, we're basically getting right to my my lower bound without any other stuff throughout the season. So that's a big change. I would have expected him to win rookie of the year as the most outstanding, you know, as the the best player in the rookie class, which isn't necessarily, you know, points, rebounds, all that kind of stuff though it can be. So my number one is John Morant. I think that Morant will be the most important offensive player for the Grizzlies. And yeah, young guards take time and there will be turnovers and lots of other things. But also this class, I just don't, I don't necessarily see all of those, you know, like kind of like the Trey Young, unambi- I was going to say unambiguous positive, he sucked at defense last year, but that, I don't think there's that kind of a player with Zion out in this class, much less than Luca. Yeah, I want to jaw to Zion on a per play basis, especially before he got hurt, uh, was the guy for me. I, I picked Joel Embiid over Malcolm Brogdon back in 2017 because my thought was, hey, it's rookie of the year. In some respects, I think this should be a forward-looking award. So I certainly could be induced to vote for Zion if he comes back and plays at the same level he played at in the preseason over 50 games. But I also think Ja is really good. And when you look at the opportunity he's going to have, I expect Memphis to be much better offensively when he's on the floor because they just have nobody else if preseason is any indication. And I think he's going to be an excellent assist guy. Uh, He's also, you know, at least for me, going to get a lot of buzz 
My number three is Ben Simmons. He's still a rookie, right? Hashtag not a rookie. So that was a total stop to the Utah fans. Darius Garland will be my number three choice. Again, remember, this is who we think is going to deserve it. If I had to guess who's actually going to get it, I would say RJ Barrett. Because uh, it looks yeah. like he's he's still going to get a fair number of reps uh, for the Knicks this year, and I expect that to grow as they fall out of contention, and maybe some of these veterans uh, are no longer on the team or it, just get phased out. And rookie of the year, if we're predicting actual voting, it is often a counting stats award. You know, and who yeah. who gets that? RJ Barrett is going to have those opportunities. So my prediction was RJ Barrett actually wins the award, driving Nate and me crazy. So I, I think that's kind of I think that's actually you mean actually gets third. No, actually, what? No, actually, wins the award. Barrett wins. Oh, you it. think he's gonna? He he's gonna. Win I think it he's gonna Jaw? win it. I think he's going to win it. Um, Jaws I think. I think people are getting smarter. We'll see. I, I'm. <laughs> and it also neither one of them if it's Ja versus rj neither one of them being on a good team well this so that won't be a, a point for either one of them yeah I, I mean i think i think memphis might be better than new york this year and there's yeah, just well there's probably gonna be some negative energy around the knicks as as there always is i, I predicted um, 27 and 26 27 for memphis 26 for the knicks so yeah it's gonna be close yeah we're recording this before wednesday night's games but good to see for me that garland is going to be in the starting lineup i had worried that he wasn't it seemed like they're just managing him as he first came back from what were two knee surgeries according to chris fedor and then a foot injury suffered just before camp started but it looks like he's gonna be full go to start and uh so that's good for me it is good i i haven't said my number two just because young guards very rarely turn out well i garland i think will end up being you know i had him highly higher rated than the guy i'm picking second as an as a long-term prospect and this is more watching the preseason summer league a little bit deandre hunter i think hunter he had more skill with the ball in his hands and and will benefit from this idea of you know like basically how much do you take off the table from being a capable defensive player and having a lower usage you know like he just will be kind of less destructive so i i think that's a decent argument for for him to to do well in this it would be hard for me to see him necessarily winning it that's not a great case but in terms of you know kind of like more the jaron jackson jr type of argument where hey he did a lot of good stuff out there and didn't do that much that was negative i I like hunter for that purpose yeah i had him as my number four with barrett as as my number five because i think barrett is really going to be a a negative player and i don't like him as much as a long-term prospect i would put garland above hunter just because i think that the upside is just not necessarily there with hunter some of the same principles i talked about where i'm going to default more towards the long-term prospects i don't expect deandre hunter to be a long-term impact player in the in the league i think he can be solid but uh and he's certainly again is going to get a ton of playing time in atlanta this year looks like he's going to start for them Sophomore of the year, I think we probably both have Luka Doncic there. We do, and there are, though, plenty of other intriguing candidates. Trey Young, who finished second rookie of the year there, but this could be the time that one of the bigs takes a step forward. Jaron Jackson, Mitchell Robinson, DeAndre Eaton all have a shot at that. Marvin Bagley's going to put up numbers this year, but contributing to winning basketball, being a part of what the Kings do well, I think he's going to be behind that. And then the other guy I want to make sure to mention is Shea Gilchrist-Alexander. I think he could end up having a nice year in Oklahoma City, though the amount of creators they have could end up hurting his stats a little bit though i think he could show signs that he's the guard of the future in oklahoma city yeah i don't know i, I think i mean he's gonna start at the two he's gonna play all the minutes he can handle there yeah, Dennis Schroeder is probably not in their plans as much going forward i mean they may even play some three guard lineups gallo is not really that much of a creator chris paul's not gonna play that many minutes so yeah i think gilgis alexander certainly deserves a lot of mention here when we talk about uh, we do a separate award of sophomore of the year last year's non-rookie of the year winner uh Last year we did, I'll be subjective. Last year we did the non Mitchell Simmons category. 
but I think it's still gonna be Trey Young I like what I've seen from him in preseason he looks stronger he looks a little quicker his handle looks a little bit tighter so I think he's gonna have a wonderful offensive year even if the Hawks are gonna disappoint due to their defense and because they suck when uh he's off the floor so yeah number three I mean DeAndre Ayton if he just cleans up his defense he could look really really good offensively so I'm not foreclosing on that and Wendell Carter Jr. as well is I mean he's gonna be the starting center for the Bulls if the Bulls take a step forward if he can really defend um Jared Jackson Jr. I'm not feeling as high on after preseason he also I mean you didn't hear any buzz about him potentially like making the USA team or doing anything good like Bagley beat him out really to you know kind of take the next step with those guys so I haven't loved what I've seen from him so far but certainly it is a threat to win this as well. I, I would have Trey in a tier above these guys. We're talking uh, about the second best sophomore of the year. Okay, you want to do the most impossible category here, which as we talked about in the NBA cast last night, most improved player almost by definition is impossible to predict because what makes you most improved is that you sucked and you didn't have any not that you sucked, but that you weren't that good and there wasn't really much indication that you're going to improve the way you did so it's all like by even predicting that someone is going to get it you are kind of lessening the chance that they would get it it's it's pretty funny but uh all right who you, who you got here give me th- give me your top three most improved players i have a universe of like 15 guys that i came up with and and i also it wouldn't shock me if the winner doesn't even come from that universe oh like absolutely i mean yeah. it, there have been numerous times where that has been the case and and there are sometimes the people who i think get this closest right is who have their ear to the ground on a specific team and know that a player you know their role or maybe there was some buzz yeah. like that was true with pascal siakam last year and i'm guessing it was with oladipo i just don't remember like i didn't talk with jay michael at that like at this exact stage that two years ago but i you know this is the year that i'm gonna kind of put it on the line and then if if, if i do this with players where if they if they don't deliver then i'm gonna maybe turn on him and that's alonzo ball like i just i think he's gonna you know some of the destructive parts of his game that if the jump shot looks a little bit better it did in the preseason and this was i put this in before last night's game i also think that lonzo as a in as an intuitive passer will benefit a lot from playing on this pelicans group that has more talent and that is going incredibly up tempo i think all those things will really help him i'll roll through another another group guys also something to note i do not include second year players at all in this there are a lot of second year players that i think will take a big jump i don't think that's fair you know that's you're supposed to because adjusting to the nba takes time so for example you know like grayson allen could be a player who actually improves a ton this year but it's the second year doesn't count so my, here's yeah, my here's, and also I think we kind of eliminate veterans who are really kind of established and have a bounce back here. Sure, yeah, I don't have any you of them on the, on my the, list. There's either. a few like Gordon Hayward and Russell Westbrook are actually two players I expect to be much better than than they were last year, but it's kind of doesn't quite capture the spirit of the award. Right, and this is not comeback player of the year either, where it's somebody who was in who was good and then was injured and then is back. Yeah. That is that or, is or you know someone who is suspended for drugs and then returned, which is why they changed it to most improved player back in the eighties. Yeah, because so, that's that's who won it every year. Was do you want uh, do you want me to because my list is shorter than yours? Do you want me to run through it first? Yeah, because I still can't figure out who the hell I'm going to pick off this. Okay, list, so. so there are a lot of a lot of different types of players on this list, but some of them it's expanded role, some of them it's I just think they're going to be better. And in one case, it's he wasn't an NBA player last year, and I think he is this year. And that's I would love to see Kendrick Nunn win the award just because that sort of improvement is pretty cool, where if he goes from being a non-NBA player to a rotation guy for the Heat, and I think that's entirely possible. It's a very different type of improvement, but I like it. Not yeah, as but it, I mean, if, as a rookie, though, it's kind of... Has he has he played at all in the league? I don't think I he think has, he right? I think he technically did, but he's bounced around. He's like... um. 
Again, he's not my pick or anything. I picked Lonzo, but I wanted to mention him just because I think that'd be a cool story. Luke Kennard is more of the kind of traditional, you know, getting getting a little bit more experience and is getting more capable and they need a two guard in the worst way. Royce O'Neal, Jason Tatum, and the one that I don't believe in it, but I could also see it just because of the role shift is Terry Rozier. You know, if Rozier could actually lead sure. Charlotte to competence, he he would win most at, most improved for me probably. Yeah, he, he was on my list. Uh, all right, so my number one, again, this is... Uh, the category that I have by far the least confidence in. Zach Levine is going to be my number one. Toward preseason, if he can just cut out the long twos, they're going to actually have some spacing around him. He's now a couple years removed from that ACL. Took a big step forward last year. Uh, he's gonna be my pick uh you know maybe he could be a little bit better defensively as well jamal murray the perpetual candidate for me he was my pick last year uh and then pascal siakam yes again pascal siakam i mean i think he might average 25 points a game this year and be relatively efficient i mean his keep in mind his usage was 20 percent 20.8 percent last year and i can see that getting into the high 20s this season well and i um, remember we talked about Giannis potentially winning it a second straight year and there's an argument that he deserved heavy heavier consideration than he got oh yeah um so a few others that you haven't mentioned here glenn robinson the third is going to have all of the opportunity in the world he's not going to put up a ton of counting stats but if he can shoot it well from three and just provide even halfway competent three and d play for the warriors considering that like he couldn't even get in the rotation for the pistons last year and the pistons were almost as desperate for that type of play last year as the warriors are gonna be this year he, he's definitely got the opportunity in front of him. john collins if he can really become more of a play starter than a play finisher and take a step forward defensively that's one uh jason tatum uh, certainly uh, people have been talking about his preseason a lot gordon hayward i expect to be a lot better this year but he's kind of ineligible karis lavert uh especially if he can stay healthy he's gonna have plenty of chances to eat he looked like he might be on that path at the start of last year before that gruesome injury Malcolm Brogdon, he's going to have a, a chance to take a big step forward, especially early in the year with the uh, old depot out. He's going to be the primary pick and roll threat. He hasn't been that yet uh, in his career. Bam Adebayo, I mentioned him in the defensive player of the year, potentially. Markel Fultz, certainly you have to talk about him since he was like not even a rotation quality player last year. I just, because of the jumper not being there, I don't think he quite has the upside. I mean, I think you, you have to kind of go from a point to where you're really a like close to star player by the end of this for to get into it for me in a lot of cases uh aaron gordon and john isaac you could also throw them in as possibilities ben simmons another one i think where if he could just get his jumper to being passable he's going to go back now with no jimmy butler to having a, a lot more chances with the ball if he can improve as a half court player Devin Booker took major steps forward last year. So like Aiton, if he can clean up his defense, he could be on this list. And uh, Donovan Mitchell is going to have a much better ecosystem this year with the shooting that the Jazz uh, are going to have and good coaching, good role man finisher, Mike Conley to set him up to some degree, although I don't see them doing a ton of that. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of guys. I, I mean, I, I honestly think just about anyone on this list could win this award in my mind and maybe a fewer because they'll be focused on guys who are big scorers but could potentially win this even in reality yeah one other guy i want to mention not a scorer but og Ananobi had a lost year last year and i think that he's going to have an, a situation to succeed but i mean he his career high per is 10 and he brings his value more on the other end of the floor but i could see him having an, a nice season and, and improving his stock player who will most beat regression i think that's got to be steph curry this year i think he's going to have a wonderful year at age 32 i mean it's really the way he looked in preseason was outstanding i think that he it's really only the all-time greats who can keep it going past 31 or 32 at you know a top five player in the league level and i think he is that kind of a player uh who did you have 
I believe I've picked Chris Paul before, but I'm going to pick him again. Paul's it, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Paul and LeBron basically have like uh, been the ones who have won this every and year. And I think us. the degree of difficulty at 34 is is pretty significant. You know, but he's not that much older than Steph, but I, I think it makes a big difference. And being a part of a new team in Oklahoma City, if he can stay on the floor, I think that would be it'd be really exciting to see. And LeBron is in the is is certainly in the conversation. Steph, absolutely. I mean, especially if Steph is meaningfully better this year than last year, then I think that he would be a deserving winner of this award. Mike Conley is certainly someone you could consider as well. First time he'll be playing in spread pick and roll. Lou Williams basically never falls off. Uh, anyone else you wanted to mention? Yeah, Al Horford. Age 33 season could end up being a, a big part of Philadelphia's success. And I wonder how all the fit stuff is going to work, but I think he'll be an important part of it. Biggest surprise team. This is always hard because it's kind of in some ways calibrating us against ourselves or against other people. And, you know, who do who do other people think is going to be good and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to go with Dallas. I mean, it would be a big improvement off of last year. I have them making the playoffs with 43 wins. And considering they are still a very young team and in the kind of the broader national picture have not gotten that kind of shine yet other than Luka I could see it the other consider the other teams I consider the Raptors I mean losing two key players and still being a playoff team the Bulls and the Thunder yeah I'm actually not picking Dallas to make the playoffs but I also think they're the most likely surprise team I don't have any team that I have actually just straight up predicted to really exceed expectations a ton but Dallas strikes me as one of the most likely to do it Sacramento you could throw into that category OKC and Toronto were the ones uh, that I came to mind biggest year-to-year wins improvement I picked the Lakers to go from 37 to 53 wins this year so that'd be 16 Chicago would be second 13 from 22 to 35 I didn't work mine out but I think it would be Chicago because I have them going to 37 biggest surprise player yeah it's somewhat of a proxy for most improved but you can throw in some other ones I think John Morant is still gonna really open some eyes this year for people maybe I'm just overstating how much people are kind of sleeping on him but I think he's gonna be awesome Another one that really no one's been talking about is TJ Warren. I think he could actually really have a big year if this shooting looks like it's a, a real improvement. He certainly was very aggressive with it in preseason. And then Zach Levine, who is my most improved player choice. How about for you? I don't know why this is a drum I'm beating, but if Royce O'Neal ends up being like the, a fifth starter or something like that for the Utah Jazz or a fifth closer for them, I think that could be really important, especially if they're a really good team, which I think is a possibility. And then I have a t- actually have a ton of guys for this, partially because I'm willing to separate out for this this popular perception versus everything else so i think there are a lot of players who are going to get a greater opportunity and that that will surprise people so that could be a group like sadoransky maxi kleba jake layman daniel house where i don't think they're going to fundamentally change how we think of them as players but it will be different than the popular perception and then a couple of players i think will have i guess you could call redemption years tristan thompson i think there's still a a a pretty good player in there and the the Cavs need it the worst way mario hazonia is probably going to be an actualized version of himself on this crazy crazy Blazers second unit and then Hall Neto maybe potentially a high leverage spot with the Sixers just because they need a backup point guard and then a couple of guys that I think could really break out from the younger classes Grayson Allen I mentioned ineligible for me for most improved player I think he could end up being a regular in the rotation for the Grizz Bojan, or sorry, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Matisse Thibel. Most disappointing team, I think the Hawks, I picked to be the lowest below their over-under, and maybe the hype on them has slowed a little bit. I haven't really seen anyone picking them for the playoffs recently. It seemed like early in the offseason, there was a thought that they're really going to take a massive step forward this year. And then the Warriors are the other one for me. Again, they are a team of extreme variability. How about you? The Warriors are my number one. 
Especially because other than Steph's brilliance, I think they could actually be less watchable than people think. You know, like Steph's going to be amazing and he, and they have that, but just the defensive flaws and borderline incompetence that they're going to have at moments, that's not necessarily the most fun thing to watch. So there'll be some games that are incredibly high scoring and all that stuff. But also, I wonder how players like Draymond Green, you know, who's such a great collaborative fit with the elite talent that they had, now that they're significantly worse offensively and defensively, how is that going to work? Maybe he'll thrive, but I'm a little bit more skeptical of that and then so you had the the hawks they're my number two then the other two i wanted to mention the pacers the, again that's maybe yeah. using the over under as a proxy like this might just be a lost year for them rather than a huge negative where they have to reshuffle everything though the sabonis turner part is the real potential risk there and then the san antonio spurs it, it i think this is a real challenge for them to just kind of figure out what combination of players pop thinks is best to, to maximize this team and yeah, I just I just think it might be just you know, especially if like they miss the playoffs and this is kind of pop sees where it's going and maybe he even potentially retires that that could, if to you know to kind of set up the Team USA Olympic stuff. I I could see that being a possibility. Yeah, biggest year to year wins drop. OKC going from forty nine to thirty three. Hornets from thirty nine to twenty four for me, and then the Warriors and Raptors last year's finalists who obviously had some major free agent defections. Um most disappointing player lots of different possibilities here and a lot of it again it's do you score it on expectations or anything or or some of their criteria the top tier for me though was was four kind of players one is actually a combination of players and i'll just go through those four my number one is brandon ingram just because i think being outside of the lakers will will help him in certain ways but i also think he will be the least engaging part of this pelicans team and that will be disappointing for a lot of i mean he's just not the you know the ball movement all the other fun stuff with them and it was great that he was doing the quick release threes so i think that's an important one and then my number two and then i'll let you talk is the combination of DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner. I, I don't mm. think that it, I just don't think it does either one of them a service. If the Pacers do really disappoint this year, I think that that could be a big part of it, whoever's quote unquote fault that is. But I could see just that idea being not only a significant disappointment, but also a very important one for the Pacers and let's say the arc of the franchise. Yeah, if you think that that's going to work with Sabonis at the four, I could see that being the case. The two guys I have are D'Angelo Russell and Will Barton. Two guys who have pretty big contracts are obviously a big part of what their teams are trying to do. But now with Denver having even more depth at the 3-4 position, needing to get better defensively, Barton really struggled last year with the injuries, struggled in camp this year as well could very easily see him losing that starting spot and kind of just being a guy off the bench, which is not what they're paying him to be. And Russell, uh, I do not predict that he will be worth the max contract that he was given this season uh let's finish it up with executive of the year so my rubric here which executive improved his team's fortunes the most since last season ended given the available resources so starting with trades after the season were over draft off season and obviously this would include by the end of the year trades during the season which we don't know yet I can keep this short. Lawrence Frank, the Clippers are a championship contender now. I have them winning the championship. And yeah, they gave up a ton to get Paul George, but they still have a really, really good team. Yeah, and they also did it. I mean, they picked up Mo Harkless for free and a first-round pick. That was pretty good. They got that trade done to get George and Kawhi. And yeah, if it doesn't work, there's a lot of risk there to be sure. Sure. But uh, he did it really, I think, in the best possible way. And the other part that makes them different is that Frank was able to do so with, while he, they gave 
up a bunch of draft equity, they were able to keep the depth that makes them a championship contender or favorite, depending on how you see it. So Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, their own first round pick tradable for the 2020 draft. All those things make them, you know, fundamentally, let's say different from the Lakers that they can also improve this team from this juncture and they're deep enough to really compete. They have so many good players. Yeah, I would go with Frank number one as well. Obviously, so much of this depends on what actually happens during the year. David Griffin would be my number two and Sam Presti my number three. Although in terms of actually winning the award, usually it's teams that really take a major step forward in the year in question, which you know maybe the Pels could do. I don't expect OKC to do that. They probably actually will make another salary or not salary, but talent moving trade with Gallinari at some point during the year. A few other candidates that could come to mind if, the, if their team's really popped. Dennis Lindsay remade the Jazz quite a bit. In terms of like who actually might win it, he might be my number two. Elton I'm going to go yeah. crazy with the possibility that Donnie Nelson wins it because almost all of his good moves didn't happen this summer. But if they have a big jump, I could see him getting the benefit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is kind of where you get rewarded for all your building in, in previous years. Elton Brand, if the Sixers play really well this year, he remade the team. Danny Ainge as well, especially that's probably the one that could most benefit from an in-season move, really boosting their fortunes. But if you want to say that Kyrie Irving was fait accompli leaving, they recovered pretty well, you would have to say. Uh, you know, Sean Marks, I don't know how good Brooklyn's going to be this year. And the KD acquisition is not going to be felt until next year. So he probably won't win it. But obviously he did a lot to improve his team's fortunes, especially if, you know, they have a nice year and they win like 48 games or something. And then you're adding KD to that mix and you've got young guys who are getting better. Uh, you, you could certainly make an argument for him at the end of the year if things go that well. There's also a group of, I mean, because there's just so much turnover here. It's like who, whichever of these teams actually look good could get into consideration. We don't know exactly who that's going to be yet. But I mean, Vlade Divac, if Sacramento takes a real step forward, Kevin Pritchard on the same principle in Indiana, I don't expect it's going to go incredibly well there, but maybe it will. Gar Foreman improving the Bulls from 22 wins. If they make it into the playoffs, he could be in consideration. Another guy who isn't has no chance of actually winning the award is Zach Kleiman in Memphis. Really like uh, what he's done so far. We'll see what he ends up getting for Andre Guadal and Jay Crowder. Also, I mean, they're not going to be good enough that you could actually get in consideration for the award. But certainly, I think in terms of we might look back in three or four years and be like, yeah, this season was a, a huge one in getting the Grizzlies uh, started on their rebuild. So uh, now that I've named half the league, anyone else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, I, I think that's enough. But I will make a I will make a pick for another award that you and I give out, which is not executive of the year. And oh, yeah, my pick right now is the person who wrote the foreword for my book, Bob Myers. I think that the decision to use their basically all of their available resources to acquire D'Angelo Russell, meaning they had to also trade Iguodala, give up those first round picks, give up all that cash to get under the hard cap, that it will not only bite them on the butt for this season, which with Clay Thompson being out for all or most of the season, you could already as a lost cause, but just the overall negative that if Russell doesn't fit, if he's not as clear of a value contract, that they really did give up a lot to make that happen. And the there is a, a an opportunity cost of not, you know, like that they could have been a playoff team. They could have even been, you know, a lot closer to con contention and they, you know, made it a very different thing without really like, it's not like they're getting a great draft pick out of this or something. All right. Yeah, I got to make sure we mention that in future episodes. I would agree with you on Bob Myers. I hope you'll agree with me that Hollinger and Duncan NBA show is an awesome new podcast. Thanks everyone who listened and subscribed. If you haven't yet, please give us a shot. The first episode was really very interesting. Got some great behind the scenes notes from John of what happens when 
cuts are being made I, i'm really pleased with how much he's been willing to share so far about his time in memphis and obviously there's the, the great insight that made him get hired by the grizzlies in the first place as well so that'll actually be the last or the next time you guys hear from me will be on sunday with hollinger and duncan and then dunk Don will come out sunday night shortly after that and hope this is a long enough episode for you. We're not going to have an episode tomorrow night with the, there being a Warriors game, but we basically gave you a double episode here tonight. So hopefully that can tide you over until Sunday. Till then. Thanks again to Blinkist for sponsoring today's program. Get started with them at Blinkist.com slash Catspace. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Catspace. Easy room slash Catspace because we talk about it all the time here on the program. The Blinkist app gives you the key takeaways from thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to. 10 million people are using it right now. It is a massive and growing library. You can get all of the knowledge power-packed from these nonfiction books in just 15 minutes and get 25% off your first year at Blinkist.com slash Catspace plus a seven-day free trial as well. Don't forget that slash Catspace URL so let them know that you came from us. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.